Hi, Tamara again. Like I said last week, in anticipation of my new season starting on Wednesday, June 7th, I am hype manning my feed for other Hub and Spoke shows so that you can get a sense of the incredible company I keep in our mighty little podcast collective. This week, Erica Heilman and Rumblestrip are taking the mic. And just a reminder, if you are in or around Woodstock, Vermont on Thursday, June 15th from 4 to 6 p.m., Erica, Hubspo President Wade, and I will be performing a live show at the Norman Williams Public Library. The show is free. The reception after is free. Both are open to the public. You just need to register in the link in the show notes. Please come. And if you didn't want to already, I promise you will after sinking into the gorgeous and deeply humane storytelling of Rumblestrip. 17 Peabody jurors can't be wrong, is all I'm saying. So Erica, take it away. This is Rumblestrip, America Heilman. The museum of everyday life lives inside of each of us, a vast and echoing cabinet of curiosities. Every minute of every day, filling our endless drawers and cases with new additions to the permanent collection. A gift from a lover, a family heirloom, a note, a paper clip, a pocket knife, a picture frame. (laughs) The first time I went to the museum, it was by accident with my friend Larry. We drove by an old dairy barn in the northeast kingdom of Vermont and hand-painted on the side, it said, the Museum of Everyday Life. It would have been easy to miss. It's not the sort of road where you stop. But we turned around and we went back. There was a sign outside that said to turn on the lights and then to turn them off when you leave. But no one was there and the lights didn't work, so we went through the barn with Larry's Bic lighter. A visual history of the safety pin. That was the exhibit. Medieval safety pins displayed on tiny shelves, pictures and histories of body piercings, a loving text about Walter Hunt, the inventor of the modern-day safety pin. There was a kind of reenactment of the murder of an Athenian soldier, a death by cloak pins, which involved a bloody sheet and blood-spattered walls. It was a totally homemade exhibit about an everyday object in an unheated, unsupervised dairy barn on Route 16. Also, there was a giant stuffed bear. Soon after that, I called Claire Dolan, the maker of this museum. Claire spent a good part of her life up the road in Glover, living and working at Bread and Poppet Theater, before buying an old farmhouse and starting her own museum. I went back and talked with her, and I've been talking with her ever since. This year's exhibit is about bells and whistles. Here's Claire Dolan. Okay. <laughs> okay, now we are in the Great Hall, and this is the, uh, the front part of the museum. This is where um, the permanent collection is housed. So on display here are um, elements from previous uh, special exhibitions. Um, there's been exhibitions on the safety pin, the match, the pencil, the toothbrush, dust, and the mirror. And we've just, describe what we're standing in. Um, We're standing in a barn, and it's kind of a poorly built barn. At one point, the roof couldn't handle the snow load and started pulling, the walls started pulling away from the roof. And so at one point, the two walls were 
held together by means of a huge cable, but then <laughs> we stuck sort of these tree trunk supports to hold the roof up. And uh, anyway, it's just this, it's just a barn. And um, there have been some walls put up inside the barn. Oh, and there's the donkey coming to look in. <laughs> that would be a really good picture. This, is, uh, this area is pretty much devoted to the toothbrush. And we had a very large and beautiful toothbrush exhibit one year. What's this one? Oh, this is Meg Dolan's toothbrush. She sent this toothbrush to us with this letter. I'll read it to you. On November 28, 2010, at 10.09 in the morning, I held this toothbrush in my hand as I realized there was smoke coming around the edges of the phone jack behind the bathroom door. Ten hours, seven fire engines, one missing cat, and a smoking heap of rubble later, I found the same toothbrush at the bottom of the bag of things I had grabbed as I heard my father calling 911 downstairs. This is the toothbrush for your exhibit. Love, Meg. A lot of people who make art say, oh no, it's just as important as, as eating. But no, I feel like it's not. You, you eat first, and then you have your art, your experience of art. You know, I don't know. Why make a museum? Why? Why do that? Why is it important? Okay, it's fun. That's the same thing as playing with my dolls when I was a kid, you know. So then why? Why do it? And I guess during my growing up at Bread and Puppet, I learned there how to celebrate the mundane and beautiful things of everyday life that are that we all enjoy but somehow don't have a privileged position. Like we don't have a special job that's like appreciator of cricket sound you know or <laughs> sunset watcher or you know there's no job or or position or even discussion of why it's wonderful or useful or whatever to do those things and so um I guess I gradually came around to this idea of like well why make what would be important what kind of museum is missing you know, we have lots of museums. We have folk art museums and visionary art museums and fine art museums and natural history museums and science museums and children's museums, you know. Well, I think, I guess what seemed to be missing for me was like some museum that was directly addressing the banalities of everyday life. Um, what is the singing I hear or the screaming? This is audio. You can pick up the headphones there and listen to an audio of a conversation in whistling language. There is a language called Silbo Gomero, which uh, is a language of the Spanish Canary Islands, which um, for many years had a distinct whistled language. It's an island that has a lot of mountains and deep, deep gorges and valleys, and it was a way that people would communicate across the distances um, when, you know, the, to travel the distances would be really, really difficult. Well, you know what's interesting to me lately about the museum is that I have this whole museum whose slogan is embarking on our mission of glorious obscurity, whose whole purpose is to sort of 
celebrate and explore everyday mundane things, objects, but also our relationship to objects and and our relationship to the pedestrian parts of our lives. So on the one hand, I feel like I'm a great celebrant of the mundane. And on the other hand, I feel so oppressed by the mundane. I feel so resentful of how much time it takes to like clean the house, fold the socks, wipe the clean, wash, you know, clean the toilet, do the, you know, every, every, you know, minutes you spend every day flossing your teeth or I, when I feel like this huge pressure of time, like there's never enough time, then I feel like I'm in this constant struggle where I, I revere and find great beauty in sort of these tiny moments of doing something inconsequential in life. Like when you're in the backyard and you're weeding the garden and you hear a weird sound and you look up and you see some, just some weird slant of light on the telephone wire or something. And it's just a little sublime, quiet moment that of no consequence, you know, like I love those things. And I think they're so much the essence of life. And yet at the same time, I can hate those things and be so just feel like there's so much to do and they're all it's all so stupid. God, I just keep seeing things that need fixing adjusting. These are parts of the mirror exhibit that have been um installed here in the Great Hall to be on permanent display. There is a classic bathroom mirror. There's a poem by Sylvia Plath entitled Mirror. And there is a, I love this piece. This is an etched mirror. Um, This is just a beautiful example of the mirror etching craze that really spread across the US in the 70s where people etched all kinds of things into mirrors and then hung them up as art in their dens and rec rooms. This is depicting, I believe, a pinto pony rearing up on its hind legs over a landscape of sagebrush and cactuses. Pretty nice. Well, can you explain where, where we are for people listening in New Zealand? Oh, yes. We're, we're deep in rural Vermont where there's nothing going on and everything is really far apart from everything else. And um, there's uh, a lot of farms and a lot of wooded woodlands and um, there's small villages separated by miles and miles. And uh, there's some main, main roads. And I'm, my place is right on one of those kind of main connector roads and uh, it used to be a big old family farm. It was a dairy farm for many years that then got sort of subdivided up and sold off. And uh, there's a big old barn right next to the road. And um, that's where the museum is now. But what, what is, what is, 
How do you how, how do you characterize the Northeast Kingdom where where this is? Oh, I feel like so um, unqualified to talk about what the Northeast Kingdom is. Well, for you, um, for you know, in February. In February, oh my God, it's a wasteland. The Northeast Kingdom is a wasteland in February. It's very very quiet, and you see the same six or ten people over and over and over again. And you have to expend an enormous amount of effort to do really simple things like keep the mailbox showing so that you can receive mail from the outside world or (laughs) keep your car running because it's minus 35 or go to the grocery store. You know, things take a lot of effort in the winter in the Northeast Kingdom. It's not a simple or easy place. And it's dark. The skies are dark. Yeah. But I think you have some pretty off-the-hook parties. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you have to make a big... You make a point of seeing people because it's so it feels so isolated. So, yeah, having parties is, is not only, like, an entertainment, but sort of a duty... Like a response, it's your responsibility to have a good party or two just to keep everybody going in the Northeast Kingdom. It's my way of being civically minded. Like some people participate in the PTA or, you know, become selectmen or something in their town, but I just have some good parties in the winter. That's my civic participation. <laughs> Here's a really moving thing that somebody sent in for the dust exhibit. These are the ashes of um, a woman's son. She writes in this letter, Dear Claire, as we talked about in August, I'm finally getting around to sending you some ashes of my son, Sean, 1965 to 2015, for your dust exhibit, Dust to Dust. He had requested that they be scattered in all 45 states he had spent time in, in his too short life. She, um, she sent me her, her son, a little portion of her son's ashes for the dust exhibit, and they're here in this beautiful silk bag, in a box that's inside the bag, and it has in a little desk drawer that's mounted to the wall. I used to want to be a master gardener. In fact, once I even applied to school at the New York Botanical Gardens. And there was this big interview for the school in a boardroom full of master gardeners. I told them that my fantasy was to make a garden that was hidden in the woods, and maybe someone would see it sometime, and maybe no one would ever find it. I didn't get into gardening school, but the impulse is still there. And finding Claire's museum in a barn in the middle of the northeast kingdom of Vermont. It was a little like that garden I had in mind. I think you'd like it. Okay, this one is good. I would visit again, always, sometimes, never. Never. How did you hear about us? Website friends saw it driving by. Friends. What really caught my eye was, they left it blank, 
some things you could improve are not as weird things. The exhibit made me feel creeped out. I'd like to see future exhibits about normal things. <laughs> that was Claire Dolan, the chief operating philosopher of the Museum of Everyday Life. There are lots of pictures of the museum on my website, rumblestripvermont.com, and a link to the museum website. This is Rumblestrip. I'm Erica Heilman. Thanks a lot for listening. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.